The following is a message from the pulpit of Parkside Baptist Church in Mesquite, Texas, led by Pastor Mike Wells. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Thank you. I appreciate uh, all the kindnesses that have been uh, shown to me since I've been here. Let me ask you tonight to please open your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Looking around the audience tonight and uh, thinking about the message that I'm going to preach, and I noticed uh, four people in the room tonight that uh, have heard this message before. I know all four of those people well. They need it again. Because it's hard to go anywhere to hear me preach that there's not somebody there that's heard the message before. I only have three sermons. I have several hundred titles, but I only have three sermons. But tonight, I believe that the Lord would have us to look at this passage. After Saul had reigned as the king of Israel for about two years, he chose 3,000 men to go on a special mission with him. He actually took 2,000 of the 3,000 men and went to a place called Michmash. While Saul was in Michmash with his 2,000 men, his son Jonathan, who was second in command in the army, took the other 1,000 men and went to a place called Gibeah. While Jonathan and his 1,000 men were in Gibeah, the enemy, the Philistines, came into the land of Israel and actually set up a fort inside the land of Israel at a place called Geba. Well, Jonathan and his 1,000 men were not going to just sit back and let the enemy come in and put up a fort. And so they left Gibeah and went down to Geba and they attacked the enemy and they defeated the enemy. So the enemy, the Philistines, left the land of Israel and went back to the land of the Philistines. Saul, the king, wanted the entire nation of Israel to know about this great victory they had had. So he sent out uh, trumpeters, and the trumpeters would go from village to village. They would blow their trumpet. Everybody would stop what they were doing. They would come to the middle of the village, and the trumpeters would read an announcement from the king. As this news of the great victory spread across the land of Israel, it took several days, maybe a few weeks, for them to get to every village. At the same time, the news of the great defeat was spreading across the land of the Philistines. So the Philistines began to gather an army to come back to retaliate against the Israelites. The Bible said the Philistines had 30,000 chariots. And I don't know how many men was in each chariot, whether it was one or two or six or eight. I don't know, but they had at least one in every chariot. So now the enemy has 30,000 mounted soldiers and iron chariots. And the, Philistine, uh, the uh, Israelis, you remember, they had 3,000. Well, not only did they have 30,000 chariots, the Bible said they had 6,000 horsemen. We might call them cavalry. So now the enemy has 36,000 mounted soldiers. These mounted soldiers had to have support forces. The Bible calls them footmen. We might call them infantry. And the Bible said that the footmen were more than you could number, no more than you could number the grains of sand on the seashore. So when Saul and his 2,000 men in Michmash heard that the enemy was coming and heard how many there were, some of Saul's men began to go AWOL. They, uh, they, they deserted. The Bible said some of them hid in the caves and some hid in the thickets or the bushes, some hid in the rocks, some in the high places, some in the pits. 
So Saul took what he had left of his original 2,000 from Gibeah and he went down from uh, Michmash and went down to Gibeah where his son Jonathan was. He was going to combine his forces with Jonathan and so when he got there he did and he counted to see how many they had left between the two of them and they had 600 men. Now remember the enemy had more than you could number, no more than you could number the grains of sand on the seashore. So when the enemy got to Michmash, of course they figured out Saul wasn't there anymore so they set up their camp in Michmash. Then the enemy sent out three groups of what the Bible calls spoilers. The word spoiler in that particular place in the Bible is referring to a group of men who have been specially trained to attack. Uh, we might call them commandos. And the Bible said that one group of the spoilers came from Michmash down to Gibeah from this direction. And one group came from that direction. And one group came from this direction. So now the enemy has... Uh, Saul and Jonathan and their 600 men sort of semi-circle surrounded. So Saul decided he better check to see how many weapons they had ready to fight. So he checked with his men to see how many weapons they had. And he found out they had two weapons. Not two weapons per man. Two weapons. Saul had a sword and Jonathan had a sword. And nobody else in the Israeli army had a sword a spear, a bow and arrow, a battle axe, a buckler, a shield. They had nothing to fight with. Well, there was only one way to get out of Gibeah. There was a pass that went up through the mountains behind Gibeah. And the enemy figured out that that was the only way to get out of Gibeah. So the enemy sent out a fourth group that the Bible calls a garrison. It's another military term that refers to a group of men who have been specially trained to defend a certain spot. So the Garrison went around behind Gibeah and set up their garrison, or we might call it a roadblock. And now they've got the enemy, they've got the Israelites completely surrounded. And the Bible said that Saul was in the uttermost part of the camp underneath the shade of a pomegranate tree. <laughs> you know what he was doing. He was discouraged. And he was getting as far away from the enemy as possible with his soldiers between him and the enemy. And right there... It's where we pick up the story. So if you'll look in chapter 14, 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many are by few. And let's pray. Father, I pray tonight that you'll bless this few moments that we spend together looking at this one brief portion of Scripture. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will move me out of the way and please don't let me distract anyone from being able to hear you tonight. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will speak to every one of us, speak to me Help me to know the words to say. But much more important than that, please speak to everyone that's here tonight and let every one of us hear what you have to say tonight. I pray that you will challenge. I pray that you will encourage. I pray that you will strengthen people that are here tonight to be better servants and uh, more dedicated soldiers for the cause of Christ. In Christ's name, amen. 
Jonathan went on to say to the young man that was his armor bearer, he said, you and I are going to leave the camp here in Gibeah, and we're going to go across the valley to where the enemy is, and we're going to show ourselves to the enemy. He said, if the enemy says, you stay there, we're coming to where you are, that's a sign that God's not in my idea. And I don't know about you, but I'm out of here. He said, but if the enemy says, come up here to where we are, that's a sign that God is in my idea. And guess what? You and I, just the two of us, we're going into the enemy camp. So the Bible said at the edge of the camp in Gibeah that there was a sharp rock, or, the, or we might call it a steep rock or a cliff. And the Bible said that at the other side of the valley where the enemy was, there was another sharp rock or a cliff. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer left the camp there in Gibeah, and they went across the valley. And when they got to the other side of the valley, they stopped at the bottom of the cliff, and they just stood there right out in the broad daylight in the wide open and just waited, it wasn't long, until two of the enemy soldiers noticed that they were down there. And one of the enemy soldiers shouted down and said, come up here and we'll show you a thing. You remember when you were a little kid on the playground at school and somebody smarted off to you and you said, come over here, buddy, and I'll show you a thing or two? You didn't know you were quoting the Bible, did you? But that's exactly what they said. Come up here and we'll show you a thing. And so the Bible said the rock was so sharp or steep that Jonathan and his armor bearer had to climb up on their hands and feet. And when they got to the top of the rock, the Bible said that there was a clearing there about a half acre, about the size of your parking lot out there. And in that half acre, there were 20 enemy soldiers. So Jonathan took his one sword and began to fight with a couple of those enemy soldiers. He apparently killed one of them, maybe wounded the other one. And uh, the armor bearer picked up the dead man's sword and finished off the wounded guy. And by then, Jonathan had wounded a couple of more. The armor bearer finished them off. And the first thing you know, between the two of them, Jonathan and the armor bearer, they had killed all 20 of the enemy soldiers. Well, word got back to the enemy camp that the enemies out there and the word was there's a couple of maniacs out there and they're killing everybody and so the enemy began to tremble now remember there were more of them than you could number no more than you could number the grain of sand on the seashore and when that many men all began to tremble at the same time the bible said the ground began to quake have you ever been standing next to a railroad track when a train came by going kind of slow and you could literally feel the ground quaking underneath your feet Several years ago, my family and I went on vacation out west. We loved going out west on vacation. And one year, we were on our way home from vacation, and we stopped at a place called Custer State Park in South Dakota. It's a big place, 17,000 acres. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the reason we stopped there was somebody had told us that the largest herd of buffalo left in America was at Custer State Park. So we wanted to see these buffalo. Somebody said there was about 450 of them there. So we got us a cabin, and we stayed at Custer State Park for three days. And for three days, I drove all over Custer State Park looking for those buffalo. I drove out across the prairie. I drove up the side of the mountain. I drove around the back side of the mountain. And I kept thinking, where do you hide 450 buffalo? 
And finally, on the third day, I came around this curve, and when I did, uh, bend in the road, there they were, I guess all 450 of them, and a little ravine over here on the left side of the road. And one of them was about as close as from me to the bottom of those steps over there. And so I stopped the van in the middle of the road. I threw it in park. I reached over in the back seat. I grabbed the camcorder. I opened the door. I stepped out, and I started filming a real live buffalo. And I was thinking to myself, man, here I am I, out in the west. You know, I live back at East by Chicago. Chicago and I'm out here in the west and I'm filming a real live buffalo and I'm wearing my cowboy boots while I'm doing it and wearing my cowboy hat and I'm thinking man this is really neat and about that time something brown went right through the lens of my camera and I thought what was that and I turned my camera and I looked like this and one buffalo had decided there was something on that side of the road that he liked better than what was on that side of the road so he ran across the road right in front of my van now he's running out across the prairie now I'm filming a real live buffalo running across the prairie mountains in the background still wearing the cowboy hat and I'm thinking to myself man this is really cool and about that time I began to hear this rumble off to my left in fact, the rumble was so loud, it quickly became a roar. In fact, it was so loud, the only thing I could hear above that roar was this sweet little voice saying, Get in the van! Get in the van! And I'm thinking to myself, no way, I'm not missing this. I said, man, man, I, I'm filming this. And I did. I got the whole thing on film. Uh, all 449 buffalo at the exact same moment all decided, hey, guys, there's something over there that we all need to see. And they took off across the road. But the problem was <laughs> my van and me were between them and the other side of the road. All 449 buffalo, I got the whole thing on film, came right at our van and split and went right around both sides of the van. I mean, just like an old John Wayne movie. Well, I never saw one, but Brother Miller told me about it. And when those buffalo went past my van, the ground was quaking underneath my feet. I don't know if it was the buffalo making it quake or me making it quake, but the ground was quaking. And that's exactly what the watchmen felt there in the camp in Gibeah. They felt the ground quaking. So the Bible said the watchmen went out to the edge of the camp. They looked across the valley, and they saw the enemy. The Bible uses the phrase melting away, like a wave going back into the ocean. And it said as they did, they went on beating down one another. It was a stampede. They were trampling each other. And so the watchman ran back to the center of the camp. They told Saul what was happening. He jumped up, grabbed his sword, said, Come with me, guys. They took off across the valley. They began to catch up with the enemy. They started picking up the weapons that the enemy had dropped when they trampled each other. They started killing the enemy. Some of the Israeli soldiers that had gone AWOL had actually joined the Philistine army. And when they saw that the Israelis were winning, they turned around. They rejoined the Israeli army. They began to help kill the the enemy word spread quickly that this was happening the other Israeli soldiers that were hiding in the caves and the thickets and the bushes they came back they rejoined the army and that day God gave the entire nation of Israel a great victory over their enemy because there is no restraint with the Lord to save by many or by few and one man believed that his name was Jonathan and that one man got one other man to go with him. And when I say he believed that, I don't mean he believed that like sat there in the camp and 
tell everybody else is sitting around him. I know God could give us the victory if he wanted to. It's all up to God. Whatever God wants to do, he will do. God will bless if he wants to. So let's just sit here and do nothing and see what God does. That's not the kind of belief I'm talking about. Remember what James said? James said, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Jonathan had the kind of belief that said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go do something because God may work for us and we won't know if he's going to work for us or not until we go do something. Years ago, there was a pastor in the uh, country of Wales over by England and this pastor had been pastoring a little rural church, a little country church for about a year and the deacons came to him one day and they said, uh, Pastor, uh, well, we'll have to admit to you, we don't even know for sure if we ought to be doing this, but, but we just thought we should ask you if you would at least maybe, maybe at least pray about the possibility of, uh, you know, maybe resigning our church because you've been here now a whole year and we haven't had one person saved yet. And the pastor very humbly said to the deacons, you know, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure I should at least be willing to pray about it. He said, because you're right. I've been here a whole year. We haven't had anybody say He said, well, except for wee little Bobby Moffat. That's the phrase the pastor used, wee little Bobby Moffat. Little 10-year-old Bobby Moffat was the only person saved in that church that year. Bobby Moffat, he grew up to be a missionary in Africa. He spent his entire adult life on the continent of Africa. Near the end of his life, when his health began to fail, Bobby Moffat said, uh, I, I think I know what I'll do. He said, I think I'll go back to England, and I'll uh, recruit several people to come to Africa, and uh, if each one of those people have a, a few people saved like, like I, I have, he said, uh, maybe my life will account for something after all. And so Bobby Moffat went back to England. He began to preach a series of meetings. He started in London. He made a tour of the United Kingdom and about a year later he was back in London preaching what became one of his last meetings and not one single person had surrendered to go to Africa that night Bobby Moffat's adult daughter was in the service with her husband about halfway through the service she leaned over to her husband and whispered I kind of feel sorry for daddy don't you and he said yeah I do a few moments later she leaned over again and she said why don't you and I go to Africa and take daddy's place? And he said, well, I guess I will if you will. And that night, David Livingston surrendered to go to Africa, the greatest missionary that has ever lived, because there is no restraint with the Lord that's saved by many or by few. In 1933, there was a pastor in a little town in southern Indiana, a little town called Princeton. There were about uh, 7,000 people in the town at that time, and that pastor had a burden that everybody in his town would know the gospel. But he knew he wasn't the kind of pastor that would ever get 7,000 people to come to church. In fact, he figured he would probably never get all 7,000 of them to each come one time. So one day he sat down at his desk, and as simply as he knew how, he just wrote out the plan of salvation. When he finished writing it out, he took it to a typist and asked her to type it. Then he took that to a printer, and he said, I'd like you to print about uh, 2,000 copies for me. And the printer said, well, by the time I cut the template and get the ink flowing, 
are you willing to admit you're old enough to remember those old printing presses where you had to cut a template and get the ink flowing before you could print something? And he said, by the time I cut the template and get the ink flowing, he said, I can run 10,000 copies just as easy as I can run 2,000. And he said, literally, it only costs you pennies more, so let me go ahead and run 10,000 copies. And the pastor said, no, I know for sure I'll never need more than 2,000 copies. He thought there were about 2,000 houses in his village at the time. And so they just ran 2,000 copies. He put one on the door of every house in his town. He had about 200 copies left over. And what Dr. Ford Porter never dreamed of was that that little plan he wrote out would become known as God's simple plan of salvation that has now been translated into 612 different languages that we know of. I'm sorry, 112 different languages that we know of. And it has, uh, they have printed over 603 million copies of this track on the printing presses at the Ford Porter uh, track ministry. And who knows how many more copies have been printed on other printing presses all around the world. But we do know this, millions have been saved. Because there is no restraint with the Lord to save by many or by few. Pastor Wells mentioned that I used to work with 155 bus routes in the Chicagoland area. And on the big day, we would have, uh, often have uh, over 10,000 on those buses. On one of those special weekends when we were trying to have 10,000 people, we were out visiting in Chicago that day, and one of our lady bus workers by the name of Eileen was up on the north side of Chicago. And she bumped into a little boy on the sidewalk. His name was Victorio Robles. He was uh, eight years of age at the time, and he and his family had just moved to Chicago from Mexico a couple of weeks before that. She didn't speak much Spanish. He didn't speak any English. But somehow she got through to him, told him what she wanted, and uh, went to visit his mother, somehow got through to his mother, got permission for him to come. And Victorio rode the bus that day. He was one of over 10,000 riders that rode that day. And Victorio walked the aisle, and he got saved and baptized in our Spanish junior church. Well, Victorio continued riding the bus until he graduated from high school, and by the time he graduated from high school, he'd been called to preach. So Victorio wanted to be a preacher boy. He wanted to go to Hiles Anderson College. But back then, the problem was Hiles Anderson College didn't have all the legal papers to accept foreign students, and Victorio didn't have all the legal papers to be in America. And so we had to raise some money, and we helped Victorio get back down to Monterey, Mexico, where Brother Tommy Ashcraft was the pastor and president of the Bible College there in Monterey. And Victorio enrolled in Bible College in Monterey, Mexico. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of lost track of him. Till about three or four years ago, I was in Mexico City, and I was preaching for our graduate, Brother Kevin Wynn. Brother Kevin Wynn is a missionary in Mexico City, and uh, he averages about 9,500 on Sunday morning in his church. He runs 50 buses a week, 50, in fact, he runs them three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And I found out while I was there preaching that the bus director at Kevin Wynn's church for the last 30 years has been Victoria Robles. Victoria Robles has been responsible for over 3 million people coming to church. A little over 1 million of those people have walked an aisle and filled out a, a decision slip making a public profession of faith in Christ because there is no restraint with the Lord. The saved by many or by few. And you know that's true of that family that you're rearing for Christ. That's true of that Sunday school class that you teach. 
That's true of that bus that you drive. That's true of that bus route you visit on. That's true of those few dollars that you give over and above your tithe and the offering. That's true of those few tracts that you pass out at work last, uh, each week. That's true of those few converts that you win to Christ each month. That's true of those few visitors that you bring to church on a big day. There is no restraint with the Lord to save by many or by few. My former pastor, Dr. Jack Hiles, that pastored the First Baptist Church of Hammond for 41 years, at the time was acclaimed to be the largest Sunday school in the world. The man who started Hiles Anderson College that now has over a thousand preacher boys pastoring churches all around the world, plus about 7,000 other graduates that are serving the Lord in different capacities. Dr. Jack Hiles grew up here in Dallas, Texas. He grew up over on the south side of Dallas in what at that time was a very poor neighborhood. The reason they lived in that neighborhood was because his father was a severe alcoholic. In fact, his father would often lose his job because of his drinking. And Brother Hiles used to say that every time his father would lose his job, they would lose their house or their apartment again. Brother Hiles used to say that by the time he was 18 years of age, they had lived in 17 different places, including a one-car garage with a dirt floor at his uncle's house where they lived one time for about a month because they couldn't afford any place else to live that month. I don't understand the psyche involved here, but for some reason to that little Jackie Boy Hiles as he was growing up, moving all over the south side of Dallas, those addresses where he lived stuck in his brain. Some of you that used to hear him preach often, you remember he used to often give illustrations about his childhood. And sometimes he would mention how old he was at a particular time. He'd say, when I was 8 years of age, such and such happened. When I was 12 years of age, such and such happened. And sometimes when he would give his age, he would also give the address of where they lived at that particular time. There's heads all over the auditorium shaking their head. Yes, they remember Brother Howell's doing that. And I don't know why, but some reason I got in the habit. Every time he mentioned one of those addresses, I pulled out a 3 or 5 card and I wrote it down. He mentioned one time the address where he got what he called his first store-bought haircut at a barbershop. He mentioned one time the address of the grade school he went to, one time the junior high, one time the high school. He mentioned the address of the church where he got saved, the one where he got called to preach, the one where he was married, the one where he was ordained. He mentioned one time even the name and address of the restaurant where he and Mrs. Hiles had their first date. So after years of hearing him repeat those addresses over and over, I had a, what I thought was a pretty complete list. So I went to him one day and I said, Brother Hiles, I got an idea. I showed him the list. I said, uh, I want to have a contest on the bus routes. The top 10 or 15 bus captains that bring the most visitors, I want to take them to Dallas. When you're there, we'll come here. you preach in a conference. In fact, we did what I'm describing right now one time here in this church. And I said, uh, we, we'll come to Dallas, and, and when, we, when you're there preaching in a conference, we'll hear you preach on a, uh, uh, on a, uh, a Monday night, a Tuesday morning, and a Tuesday night. And then when you fly home to, to, to Chicago on Wednesday morning to preach in our church, those bus captains and I will stay down there. And on Wednesday, I'll show them, and I showed him the addresses. I said, I'll show them all these addresses. I said, I, I think it'll be interesting to them. And he shocked me when he said, Ray, I'll beat that. He said, I'll stay down there with you on Wednesday morning and I'll show you those addresses. The only thing that shocked me more was when he got up in church the next Wednesday night and said that 
God had given him an idea for a contest. He called it the trip of a lifetime. Little play on words. He said, we're going to go to Dallas and see my lifetime. He said, but it's going to be the trip of a lifetime. He said, if you want to go on this trip, you'll have to win the contest this year. He said, because we're going to do this trip one time. It'll be the trip of a lifetime. And we did do it one time, 14 times in a row. Because Brother Hiles enjoyed doing it so much. And every time we did the trip, we always stopped our bus at this one intersection at Fernwood and Garza Avenue over on the south side of Dallas. We'd get out of the bus at Fernwood and Garza, and there was a yellow two-bedroom wood frame house on the northeast corner, and we would stand in the front yard, and Brother Hiles would tell us several stories about things that happened to him when he was living there in that house. Some of you remember the time that he found out his father was going to go to church with him, the one time his father ever went to church, and he ran across the street and borrowed somebody's telephone because it was the only person in the neighborhood that had a telephone, and he called the pastor and told him, my dad's coming to church tonight. It was there in that house. He would tell us several stories about things that happened in that house. Then we would go catty-cornered across the street to the southwest corner, and there was a greenhouse over there. And we would stand in front of that greenhouse, and every time he told the story, he would look back at that yellow house, and he would say, when we lost that house right over there, then he would point at this window, he would say, we rented that room, not that house, that room right there from the Johnson family. Then he would say, by this time, my mom and dad was sleeping on a blanket on the floor on one side of the room, and Earlene, my sister and me, was sleeping on a blanket on the floor on the other side of the room. He would say, we had one hot pot, we owned one pan, my mother would cook all of our meals in that one pan on that one hot pot in the middle of the floor. And then he would say, and you know, those of you who heard him preach a lot, you might be able to verify this, I never heard him tell this part of the story in a sermon as an illustration. But he would say to the crowd standing there, to be anywhere from 40 to 200 of us various times, he would say, now you folks know that everywhere we lived, my mother always made sure I went to church. She would always find a good church nearby and took me, take me to church. He said, except, and this is the part I never heard him tell in a sermon illustration, except we quit going to church one time for three months while we lived right there in that room. He said, because my mother got to the point to where she only owned one dress. And he said that right over there, she would build a big fire and boil a big black pot full of water. She would take two buckets of boiling water. She would go in that room, pull the window shade down, make Earlene and me play in the yard all afternoon. She would take that dress, wash it in the soapy bucket, rinse it in the other bucket, wring it out, hang it up, let it drip dry, put it back on. And he said it became so tattered and faded and worn that she became embarrassed to wear the same dress to church every Sunday. He said, so we quit going to church for three months until Mrs. Johnson figured out why we were not going to church. And he said, Mrs. Johnson owned three dresses. And he said, so Mrs. Mrs. Johnson gave one of her three dresses to his mother. And every time he told the story, he would lean out from the house and he would look down Fernwood Avenue three blocks to the Fernwood Avenue Baptist Church. And with tears running down his cheeks, he would say, Two weeks after Mrs. Johnson gave my mother that hand-me-down dress that she saved for Sunday because it was better than her other dress, 
little 11-year-old Jackie Boy Hiles got saved on a Sunday night at the Fernwood Avenue Baptist Church. Can you imagine the rewards in heaven that Mrs. Johnson, not Jack Hiles, Mrs. Johnson is going to receive for one dress? Because there is no restraint with the Lord to save by many or by many. Like every head bowed, every eye closed. Thank you for joining us today. For more audio or video content, you can visit our website at parksidebaptist.org.